Let us pray. God of life, of rushing waters, be with us on this day when you proclaim Jesus as your beloved child, and in proclaiming Jesus as your beloved child, also proclaimed all of us, your beloved, beloved children, in your name. Amen. So this time of year always feels a little bit rushed to me because we have the lovely sort of slow season of Advent where we spend four or more weeks reflecting on the birth of Jesus and preparing for that. And then all of a sudden there's the birth and then Epiphany, the Magi come. And then the week after that, Jesus is grown up and he's being baptized in the River Jordan. And I just feel a little breathless. But it is a beautiful time of year because, because of this happening. And uh, my favorite gospel to preach from is Mark. It's my favorite gospel to read to you is Mark because that immediacy is beautifully captured in Mark. But, you know, our liturgical season captures a little of, of that. And so this year, the year of A, I believe, we are doing Matthew. And so that's why today we had a reading from Isaiah and from Matthew. In Isaiah, God calls the divine servant, my chosen in whom my soul delights. That was our Isaiah reading. And then in Matthew, that is echoed. And Matthew draws on this ancient language in his story of Jesus' baptism when Jesus uh, is proclaimed uh, the beloved. Now in Matthew, the baptism signals the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And after this, after his baptism, he goes out in the desert, which you may remember for 40 days. And then after that, he comes back and he enters his ministry proper. He goes up to Galilee and starts, starts healing and preaching. And for me, why the Gospels move me so deeply is that when Jesus healed, he called those he healed to participate, to go back into community and participate in community proclaim their healing, proclaim their desire to see lives transformed for joy and fullness and abundance as their lives have been so transformed. And, his, and Jesus' ministry sent a message to all he touched, that those he touched were beloved children of God, just as he had been so proclaimed, and that all people are worthy of experiencing that joy, that fullness and delight. And from here, I want to start entering what I describe sometimes as our theological mud, especially in our contemporary times. And as I was preparing for this sermon, one of my favorite places to go for inspiration is what's called the SALT Project blog. And it is a progressive uh, Christian blog and comes out every week. And it's wonderful. I love to read it. And this week it offered this. It should never cease to surprise us that Jesus is baptized at all. Matthew explicitly frames John's right as for repentance. And yet Jesus, the one whom God will call my child, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased, gets in line with the rest of us. The late great master preacher Fred Craddock, whom we all study in seminary, once called attention to the extraordinary, stunning power of this often overlooked feature in the story, that Jesus also is baptized. It's an expression of the astonishing humility and solidarity of the incarnation. In Jesus, God comes alongside us, 
even to the point of joining us in a rite of repentance and renewal. In Jesus, God comes alongside us, even to the point of joining us in a rite of repentance and renewal. And that line really struck me, because it, and it leaped out because it was part of a conversation I'd had with some colleagues from seminary, one of whom was visiting from Ohio, the other one is a Methodist minister who has a church up in Lafayette, and on Friday we went to the um, Half Moon Bay, and we were looking for whales, we didn't find them. But naturally, we had a lot of theological discussions. And so what that really struck me was, so when we were in seminary, our New Testament textbook was written by a gentleman called Bart Aaron, and he's a professor of theological studies in Chapel Hill. And in 2014, Bart Ehrman wrote a book, and that book was called How Jesus Became God. And so when I read a little story, for instance, I'm doing my lectionary research, doing the diligent, uh, you know, what we call uh, exegesis. I came at this line, struck me, God comes alongside us. And the reason that struck me is because as I, in my own ministry from childhood, developed into my current theological beliefs, so too has our society developed. So I'm 45 years old. Theology 45 years ago when I was born, even across denominations, the Catholic Church, wherever you were looking, was quite different. In 50 years, theological scholarship has shifted and changed dramatically. And so, sure enough, here's this book that in 2014 explores and points out that the, the three authors of the gospel, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're reading Matthew today, in none of those gospels did, God proclaim, did Jesus proclaim himself as God. We find that first in John's gospel. And he also notes that Jesus' earliest followers did not experience Jesus as God, the very first. And that happened later. And one of the reasons that that happened was because at this time of Jesus, the Roman emperors were taking on deification themselves, proclaiming themselves as God. And in the early Roman Empire, Christians were pointing out that their God was a God of humility, of compassion, and not the God of power that Caesar and the other emperors were representing themselves to be. And so all of us, from when, if we grew up in faith at all, all of us have been taught things about faith and the church, sort of the things that are true. And some of those things that we think of are true, we discover are not. And in the modern world where so many people now are unchurched and didn't bring in these beliefs, but are critical thinkers and who look at scripture and then don't know what to do with it because one, they're dubious about it, you know, whether not necessarily sure how to interpret it. Do we interpret it as literature? Do we interpret it literally? How, 
why do we interpret it at all? Why is it even relevant anymore? And those questions are so different from the questions that most of us, including myself, might experience here. We might be wondering, did Jesus really resurrect? Like, really? Was, Mar- was the virgin birth really a virgin birth? Was Jesus always God? These are questions that we might be asking. But the questions that folks who are coming into faith start in a different place. And that's one of the challenges of preaching, especially now. And so when I, as a pastor who studied theology, I'm beginning to preach, I have to decide, make decisions about, do I preach based on the most best available scholarship? And am I true to the integrity of the enlightenment and critical thinking, what we think we know, to the, to the reformation, again, that is happening in our society in the 21st century that began in the 20th, and reinterpreting gospel for contemporary times? Is that where I start? Or do I start with the things that I have a sense that we've all received if we're of a certain age and of a certain generation? And it's a really tricky place to sit in. But one of the reasons why I lift it up is not only that in, in doing contemporary church, there's this tension of how do we preach and teach. There's also the tension of what happens out in places like hospitals or hospice. So what we call clinical pastoral education training, which is what I have chosen to do more of to fulfill my requirement for continuing education within this conference. And what we notice as pastors, but also as chaplains, wherever we are as spiritual caregivers, is that sometimes those beliefs that we inherited as children, what we call embedded theology, they can be stumbling blocks sometimes. And Are any of you aware that, especially in hospitals, there are what we call spiritual diagnoses? We don't often think of of our spirituality as meriting a diagnosis. But it does, and and it's distinct from counseling, say, from that you might go to um, for anxiety or depression or or other forms. It it uses spiritual language. And there is one, for example, a diagnosis called spiritual suffering, So if you're in a hospital or hospice setting, or indeed a pastor like myself, and someone comes in for a consultation and they say, you know, I feel I'm I'm sick, or maybe they've just received a diagnosis or some other crisis, and I feel that God is angry with me and God is punishing me. And because there is a spiritual component to that suffering, that is what we call spiritual diagnosis, you know, spiritual suffering, which is an official diagnosis out in the clinical world. And that's why then spiritual caregivers of any faith, whether we're Christian or Jewish or Buddhist, when we consult someone, even if they're of a different faith about their experience of divinity, we ask, where, you know, where does that belief come from? What are your experiences? How, do you, how does your theology lead you to these conclusions so that we can guide people, not tell people the answers, but guide people toward 
somehow integrating a spirituality that is life-giving, that spirituality that, as Jesus said, and as the Holy Spirit said to Jesus, you are God's beloved child. And then as Jesus said to us, we are God's beloved children, which gives us life, assures us of our belovedness and of God's love. And there, there are, this brought up some other things. Like I just wanted to touch on the complexity of this moment. I've mentioned before that um, Phyllis Tickle wrote a book. She wrote it in the 90s, I believe. But she, it points out that roughly every four to 500 years, the Christian church reinvents itself in various ways. And, and we are right now many scholars identify, in another period of reinvention. And we're seeing it throughout faiths, not just in Christianity. We're seeing it in our, our Jewish communities, our Muslim communities, our Christian communities, where faith itself is being retranslated. New meanings are being derived from it, meanings that can support our adjustment in contemporary society. You may remember uh, before Christmas, uh, we'd had a little impromptu sermon and when Susan wasn't able to make it that day. And a couple of you asked, what about purgatory? You, I was asking what questions you had. And the idea of purgatory came up as I prepped for this sermon too, because of course, baptism and salvation the whole economy of salvation that grew up around indulgences that led to the Reformation, all of these things are so entangled. And what do we do with that? We are taught as Christians that baptism brings us into community, which it does, that it assures us of salvation. But what kind of salvation? If we are to really think critically about our scripture and our faith, what does that salvation really look like? And as a community existing in the 21st century, how do we help those who are unchurched? How do we help ourselves truly live out what that salvation means? Not just based on received beliefs, but on what the best of our scholarship is telling us about the history of our faith and our scriptures. And I actually do look to you for guidance in this, because this is, again, work that we do together as a congregational church. It is up to us to decide how we want to represent this to the world, how we want to bring people in. Do you all have any questions or concerns? That we, this was one of those. Yes, go ahead. Yes, the, the scripture likes to have symbols, and 40 days is one of those holy numbers. So 40 days tends to represent a lot of things. But it is a time, often a time of trial, and it's symbolic of, of extended periods of time. How about others of you? When you think of your, your theologies and how you develop spiritually in faith, Do, you, do we experience, do you experience 
spiritual evolution in your lives, spiritual maturity, asking questions. I see some nods. I know, you know, some of you, of course, I've spoken with, so I know a little more about your journeys. Go ahead, Betsy. That current thinking is ready to give up? You mean as a denomination, as a... Absolutely. So the United Church of Christ, of course, loves the God is still speaking, the, our tagline. And so UCC in particular is saying we really need to do some serious biblical study. We need to present this to our congregations and, um, and is always willing and able to make adaptations in language, in uh, presenting multiple views, in encouraging critical thought. Absolutely. Even in the Catholic Church, I read that, are you familiar, some of you may be raised Catholic, I think, yeah. So some of you may have grown up like me with the idea of limbo, that place where uh, unbaptized children went. And I will just say that when I was a child, limbo caused some of our folks in Ireland real suffering because they felt that when they died, then they wouldn't be with their unbaptized babies. It was tremendous suffering, spiritual suffering. But the Catholic Church in 2007, I believe, or nine, um, said that limbo probably doesn't exist. So they updated their theology. So, so even in the Catholic Church, which we think of, or I think of, just being for myself, as most so concretized, updates theology over time. But what we're finding now is that just the social evolution of, of liturgy and prayer hasn't yet caught up with what we know. So there's this lag between sort of what has been and what is. And as people like myself who are graduating from seminary and reading those latest scholarship, you know, go back out into the world and then encounter the beliefs that we have had for centuries, it's this tricky dance. How do we get it together? So I won't, I'll, I'll take just a couple more. I saw Becky and I saw you, Rusty. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Absolutely. Amen. That was so beautifully said. Yeah, well said. 
Rusty, and then I'll wrap up. Purgatory. So what's interesting about purgatory? So there's a purgatory has existed from pre-Christian times. An idea. So in the Jewish tradition, it's called Gehenna. This sort of vague, not quite hell, but not quite heaven, but where you go. So if you've you haven't quite repented fully in real life, you can go there, and it'll they'll they'll burn off. Uh, so purgatory is adopted from that, and and there's some line in Maccabees, which is part of the Catholic canon. That's not in our Protestant canon. That where the Catholic tradition bases the idea of purgatory on, and that has evolved. Right in medieval times, people sort of envision it as a place. A physical and temporal place, a place with space and time. And then the, the Catholic Church said, well, it's an it's a experience, it's a state of existence. Uh, so it's still recognized in the Catholic Church. But it's, it's too, you know, that understanding has also changed. And the Protestant churches, just to be clear, don't, don't believe in purgatory at all. Partly because the Maccabees is not in the canon, and partly uh, because they have all different other ideas of salvation and grace that we won't go into right now, but it's complicated. All right, one more. And then, uh, yeah. Oh, I should read it. Oh, I should definitely read it. I should read all that today. Correct. And agreed. The, an example of evolution of belief that progressive Protestant churches basically don't talk about hell at all anymore. Correct. And I'll, I'll do one more. What, you had your hand raised. That there is that part too. And then there's the other part. So there's those two tensions in Christianity, just as there was in Judaism. The, the tension of only the soul is perfect and can be sanctified. The bodies are all where all the mess is and all the sin exists. And then there's the other tradition where, again, progressive Protestant churches are leaning into, which is that bodies are holy and the mess is holy and the mud is beautiful and God is in the mud and God is in the mess and that is why the incarnation is so important and why the baptism is so important and the blessing of the Holy Spirit for an incarnate, a bodily expression of divinity is so important. And so I'll just, you know, sir, I'm just going to speak for my own self in this moment, so I'm using my I statements. But I believe that Jesus is God. I also believe that God exists in every, every in, throughout creation. There is a spark of divinity in each of you. And I love to encounter it. And Jesus perhaps represented, and again, this is my theology. Scripture is sacred to me. I love the mystery. I don't have all the answers. I, I love the mystery. I love the tension between what history says, what science says, what, you know, there's all of that stuff. And then there's the holy mystery. Something about a person who existed 2,000 years ago, whose presence was so powerful and so impactful that... Thousands and then millions of people decided this person had something special to say and represents the best of our understanding of the divine. So that's why I'm a Christian. But how each of us gets there 
wrestles with our holy texts and, you know, with the best of our integrity, with the best of scholarship, that's an individual journey, but, but we do do it in community, which is why we're here. And so we will continue this evolution together on this journey. And personally, I find it super exciting. And one of the reasons I bring it up is because it's not going away. It's only getting worse. And my, 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 my two clergy colleagues on, Mount, on Moon Bay were sitting on a picnic bench eating our lunches going, how are we going to manage this one? And we don't have the answers. But communities across the U.S. and across the world are wrestling with this. And it is something we do together. And so as part of our baptism together into the community of Christ, I look forward to doing this work with you on behalf of the body of Christ. It's very exciting. In God's name, amen.